Decades ago, while listening to her body's suggestion that something was wrong, a young wife and mother of five trusted the only healthcare facility in the area that would agree to treat her. True to their word, doctors provide the best treatment available. But what they don't tell the woman is that during their treatments, they are stealing a portion of her body. Those stolen cells proved to be extraordinarily incredible, saving the lives of people all over the world. And they continue to marvel even in our day. Everyone benefits from the woman's unknowing sacrifice, it seems, except her family, her children. Where will her children end up in a world where they can't even afford health care? The young wife and mother, Henrietta Lacks. The book, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! This is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Alexis, how are you this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Doing well. How are you? Good, good. You know, I was um, thinking of today's theme and I wanted to ask you, do you go to the doctor regularly? Yep, a whole bunch of times. A lot of times I cancel appointments, but I do go a lot. You do. I haven't been to the doctor in years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and so like regular annual mm, checkups. I don't do anything. What? I barely go to the dentist. Oh my goodness, that's a problem. Well, as long as you floss, I think you. Oh yeah, twice, three times a day. Okay, but you still got to go to the dentist, kids. In real life, I mean that's what they tell us. You do. So I'm gonna start doing that. But after this week's theme, I'm not. I mean, I think I'm gonna start doing it. I'm gonna try to make an effort to try. Because this week's theme is medical murders. (laughs) Readers, as you know, each week we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. If Alexis chooses the book, then I pick the theme. And I pick this theme because this is something that naturally comes up um, in the story of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, Medical murders, medical... mm, Injustices, criminal acts under the sanction of medicine. Medicine. So um, Henry Lacks brings to the fore acts of criminal injustice inflicted on the most vulnerable of society by those with the power to do whatever they please. And I mean, people not just in the medical world, um, scientists and also politicians um, are involved in a lot of these cases. Did you were you already aware of some of the cases the book brought up? Yes. You, yep. mm-hmm. All of them? Not all of them. Okay, so the book touches on prison experiments. I just assume, sure. Unethical cancer research that I was not aware of. And even the study of the effects of lead on children mm-hmm. without, of course, the parents' consent. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't know about that study. Did yeah, you? No. Mm-hmm. So rumors even include with that when that doctors and assistants would like travel black neighborhoods and like, Kidnap kids like the boogeyman. Insanity. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what I wanted to do for medical murders is talk about two cases that we all are aware of just to see how aware we are, because I definitely wasn't um, as educated on some of these uh, cases as I thought after reading this book. 
So the first case out of the two we're going to discuss, uh, what do you think it is? <laughs> the most famous case. Tuskegee. Of course. So the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, now referred to as the USPHS Syphilis Study of Tuskegee, um, occurred between 1937 and 1940, uh, 72. How many years is that, Alexis? It's like 40 some years. Girl, huh? that's 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I also want to give my sources so that you readers can also look into this information. For me, my source was the CDC. I know that's an institution people don't like these days. They like flip flop. They don't know everything. (laughs) What institution is supposed to know everything? Thank you. This is the CDC. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the unknowing. Look, this is what happened. So 600 black men, 399 with syphilis and 201 who did not have the disease uh, were researched, uh, were like studied and didn't give their consent for this particularly gruesome type of study. The lie. Researchers told the men that they were being treated for bad blood. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was like a col- colloquial term that can include syphilis. Mm-hmm. So um, some of these men. So there's also an idea that some of these men were inflicted with syphilis, like they were healthy men. Um, and that is always what I heard growing up. Did you hear yeah. that? Yeah. So I documented uh, statements say that the men had syphilis already. I, I think there are still some that. Listen, this is a lot of men in a a small geographical radius in the past in the South. So even fewer people than you imagine today. You know, this is in a major metropolitan area and you have nearly 400 men with syphilis to study on. So I'm going to leave that there. Yeah, they was putting syphilis Mm -hmm. in these men, allegedly. Um. So researchers were like, hey, you want to get treated for bad blood? And these men were suffering, as were their families. So, of course, they would love to get treated, but they don't have money. Well, then that's where the bait comes in, because they told the men, we're going to do it for free. Hey, you know, all them years of like slavery and Jim Crow, um, they didn't affect us because we love y'all and we want to give y'all free health care <laughs> as you deserve. Wow. Now we love y'all. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Over. Like payback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This uh, reparations. <laughs> this ain't no acres and a mule, but you can come and get some research. OK. Hmm. I mean, not research. Uh, health care. So uh, also, are you hungry? Because I know you work all day and you ain't got no money. Let me get you some meals. They say you got happy. You got McDonald's money. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> so now oh, they done promise grief. you free health care, food. Ooh. Oh, yo, you got children. I see. I'll feed them too. Okay. Oh, that concerns me. You can't get to the hospital. You can't get to the clinic. I'll come pick you up myself. <laughs> Give you a ride. What other excuses what you, doing you got? To my children. Hey, hey. Listen, stay focused. I'm giving. Okay. Also, let's say you die just because, you know, we all die. When you die, young and healthy, decades from now. Oh, it can't be decades if you're young. When you die, old and satisfied, decades from now, guess what? I'm going to pay for your funeral. Oh. Your family won't even have to pay for it. So we got. why? Because I love you, (laughs) stranger. So they promised these men Hmm. medical care. And I'm 
a doctor. Like I'm a person of authority. You are raised to trust the doctor. What I've been called? through so much schooling. Something. You never even went to school. Or if you did, you only graduated from like the first grade. It was in a three uh, room shack. No, your school. one room shack. Sure. One room. So I have been all over the world being educated and I want to be benevolent and give back to a community that is in mine. So I'm promising you health care, meals, transportation and funeral coverage uh, for coverage for your family um, in case you die, because, you know, anyone can die. The truth. Oh, help. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> By the 1940s, syphilis was knowingly treatable with penicillin. And describe syphilis, <laughs> by the way, like some prominent men in history have died from syphilis like before the 1900s. Do you know what it does to your body? I think it makes you crazy, right? Eventually it can um, spread to the brain, but it starts with like open sores and then people get boils all over their body. Um, so there are physical, there's physical pain and then that can lead to mental torment. Uh, remember when we... Um, had that episode about the woman that poisoned people with chocolate. Yes. What what episode is that? Oh, uh, let's just think about it okay, for a second. Okay. Poison oh, people with chocolate. chocolate. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> oh, we can get dark. So listen, <laughs> go back way. and listen to our Charlie and the, and the Chocolate Factory episode if you want to hear the true story of a woman who poison people with chocolate she's killing folks with chocolate when i thought it was a murder mystery (laughs) (laughs) so i thought about her because her father was in them streets and he brought syphilis home and went crazy oh i thought the mom went crazy because he gave it to her well perhaps but he went crazy died and it left their family just kind of out there uh with no protector or provider so Anyway, uh, back to the truth. So by the 1940s, syphilis was knowingly treatable with penicillin um, and doctors simply denied the men treatment. So you have 600 black men, uh, more than half with syphilis, and you are watching them die. You have taken you have you go to work every day. You come home, you eat with your wife, you play with your children. You have taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. There you go. There you go. And then you go to work and murder people. And get paid for it. And get paid. And it is all seemingly legal. It's legal in the way that it's not illegal. Right. (laughs) You know, no one's outright said you can't do this. That was before there were laws that care for people. But oh, wait, let well, me stop myself because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The laws only protect some people. So the doctors just studied what the disease did to the men's bodies, their minds, their households, because these men are still having children with their wives. Um, they're still living in the house thinking they're being treated in yeah. some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thinking they're in reasonably good health. Mm hmm. And so these deaths are painful, they're humiliating, and they're preventable. And the doctors allowed it to happen, um, as did the authorities involved. Uh, The fallout. So after the Associated Press, who's been around a long time, published a a story outing the study, 
It was deemed unethical and unjustified by a panel of scientists appointed um, by the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs. So they needed a whole panel to decide this was wrong. Because one person did not know. One person who had taken also taken that Hippocratic oath Mm -hmm. didn't know Mm -mm. that it was wrong just from that. They didn't. Mm-mm. Okay. So the panel put an end to the study in 1972, 40 years after it began. The panel had to do that. 40 in, years. Mm-hmm. In 1973, a class action lawsuit was filed and the families involved were awarded $10 million in out-of-court settlements. Yeah, I don't know if that's enough. I don't know. It's not it was your life work. Mm-hmm. 1997, President Clinton issued a formal apology on behalf of the United States. Oh, and uh, that seemingly closed the troubling book of the Tuskegee uh, experiment, mm. syphilis experiment. So uh, the second study under this theme, medical murders that I wanted to dive into is harder to uh, narrow down in those columns and diagrams that we love to create in historical studies. So it's hard to say when this happened and to who it happened, because it kind of still happening to a lot of people of varying backgrounds. Oh, what what is this? Mississippi appendectomies. Oh, that was like brand new to me. I'd never heard of that one. Me too. And I, I do believe that when um uh, the the doctor does not value the the community that the patient comes from, that the suggestion of a hysterectomy can be easily given for things that may be treatable in a community that the doctor is a part of. You know what I mean? We went from appendectomies to hysterectomies. Oh, that's because a Mississippi actendectomy is another name for unnecessary hysterectomies performed at teaching hospitals <laughs> in the South. It was nicknamed that by um, like a civil rights uh leader activists yes because you go in thinking you're being treated for one thing and you come out with a whole uh, hysterectomy so you go in (coughs) I think I got a cough what (laughs) I can't have children anymore I just came here for a cough what so I can see how you would be confused my sources include the University of Vermont Oxford NBC PBS and the LA Times so from the 1900s to 2000 Although, like I said, the actual time span may be hidden from history, theoretically occurring even today. The unknowing in this case were the women, the hundreds and hundreds of women in populations deemed undesirable, including black women, immigrants and the poor. Wow. Feeble minded people also. Right. So if you made a decision like you dating who? He ain't even got no job. Uh Uh-uh, hysterectomy. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's insane. You voted for who? Hysterectomy? Uh Uh-uh. And these are documented. You drive a Ford? (laughs) Hysterectomy. (laughs) You drive a Ford. And not all can be... Um, trace through. It's not like the Tuskegee experiment where they, all these men were under one study that was scientifically followed. This is happening all over the nation in a way that is not the information isn't centralized. So it's harder to know. Mm-hmm. So how how is it just like individual doctors like making a decision like 
or is there like a underneath feet so what she's saying is is it like uh, the man that's secretly orchestrating this atrocity well kind of yes and no the lie is usually omission First of all, usually patients are lured <laughs> or they used to be Not lured. lured. <laughs> Not lured. <laughs> they used to be lured, office. captured, or which is more common, simply omitted the truth of certain procedures by medical doctors. And this program is again sanctioned by the powers in government and, and medicine. I want to give you an example, two examples actually. So the first is Elaine Riddick. Um, she was in North Carolina. A confused and frightened 13 year old when she got pregnant after being raped um, by a neighbor uh, in 1967. She was poor and black, the daughter of alcoholic parents in a segregated North Carolina town. And she was now pregnant from her assault. So Riddick's miserable circumstances attracted the attention of social workers who referred her case to the state's eugenics board. Do you know what eugenics is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know, eugenics was a commonly accepted means of protecting society from the offspring of those individuals deemed inferior or dangerous. So it was a way to protect whiteness. That's the way it was used here. Eugenics is a practice um, used in Nazi Germany, for example. Um, In fact, uh, Hitler once wrote, there is today one state in which at least weak beginnings toward a better conception of citizenship are noticeable. Of course, it is not our model German Republic, but the United States. Mm. And you can find that um, quote printed in press. So, uh, yeah. So there was a eugenics board. Over the state, of course, because this is the time of uh, Jim Crow. So listen, mm -hmm. board members concluded that the girl was feeble minded. She's 13 and doomed to promiscuity. This girl was just assaulted. She was raped. Mm -hmm. And guess what they recommended? Care, uh, a therapist, uh, perhaps a replacement home. No, sterilization. So Riddick's illiterate grandmother, Maggie Woodward, known as Mrs. Peaches, marked an X on consent forms. Take advantage. Hours after Riddick gave birth to a son on March 5th, 1968, a doctor sliced through her fallopian tubes and cauterized them. He cut them suckers and burned them. They butchered me like a hog, Riddick says. And now she's like 67. I believe she's still living. Mm. Another example. Buck versus Bell. That's right. This is a court case. In 1927, Carrie Buck, a poor white woman, was the first person to be sterilized in Virginia under a new law. Law. Carrie's mother had been involuntarily institutionalized for being feeble minded and promiscuous. Mm hmm. Both? Yeah. How are you both? You know what? Carrie was assumed to have inherited these traits. Carrie didn't do nothing. Her mama was deemed dumb and loose. So they said, and get a baby too, because we're going to sterilize that baby. Mm-hmm. What? This the Supreme world? Court case led to the sterilization of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 65,000 Americans what? with deemed mental illness or developmental disabilities from the 1920s to the 70s. I wonder who took this case on. 
Well, I do have to tell you that Justice um, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in reference to Carrie, Carrie Buck, of which Buck versus Bell comes from. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. (laughs) What? Shocking. This is what the, Um, when was this? When was this? When was this again? Alexis, this is 1927. Okay. Yeah, that, they. But the court ruling stands today. They haven't taken that <laughs> off. Well, they haven't taken so many off. <laughs> okay. So the truth is Mississippi appendectomies were just sanctioned sterilization methods. Um, yeah, I mean. Wow. What? Wow. 25 to 50% of indigenous American women were sterilized between 1970 and 1976. Again, 25 to 50% of the indigenous population's women. Wow. Between 1929 to 1974, nearly 8,000 people were sterilized under orders from North Carolina's eugenics board. Nearly 85% were women or girls, some as young as 10 years old babies. 10? And Mm -hmm. what? Faces. Oh, mm-hmm. I forgot. Imbeciles and yeah. promiscuous. Promiscuous. Mm-hmm. So that, you know. So uh, nearly 2,000 of those women may still be alive today. In the 1900s, California led the nation in the practice of these sterilizations with California. the aim of decreasing, guess who? It's California. Oh. Mexican, Mexican population. population. Mm-hmm. More recently, though, California prisons are said to have authorized sterilization of nearly 150 female inmates between 2006 and 2010 without Whoa. proper consent. Whoa. What That's basis? yesterday. What's the basis? They, they in prison. Okay. So the fallout. Why am I not getting it? I know. Oh, because you like ethical and, you know. Empathetic. So the state of North Carolina has proposed paying $50,000 each to compensate. That's like the price of my Mac. Um, But that's what they want to pay to compensate Riddick and other victims of the eugenics program. Wow. Mm -hmm. $50,000 isn't nearly enough to bury my pain. That's what Riddick says. That's the North Carolina woman. It's shut up and go away money. Yes, it is. That absolutely is. And those are the two cases we have time to cover under the theme medical murders. Maybe I'll bring this up in the future with another book. I'm sure it'll come up again. And please bring it out. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. I need to be shocked mm. in my senses. So are but you going yeah, to go, go to the doctor? <laughs> no, I'm going. But go know. to the doctor even still. Just be your own advocate. I think yes. that's the important thing about going to the doctor is being your own advocate, asking the important questions, educating yourself on whatever they deem you have or, you know, you're yep. suffering through. Yep. Listen to your body. Yeah. Speak up. Speak. They work for you. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that is kind of a turn that's happening today. Um, I remember my grandmother was a full advocate for her asthma mm-hmm. and um, she wouldn't let the doctor tell her she's like I know my body this is what I feel and this is what I need you to treat me for so I that's the way to go mm-hmm. yeah and maybe don't tell kids not to um, speak up in front oh, of adults <laughs> yeah you remember that um, book what was it um, it was a Malcolm Gladwell book where we oh, talked sure. about that yeah maybe um Maybe the tempting point. No, no, no. It was the other one. Outliers. Outliers. Yep. Yeah. Because uh, there were two sets of children, one black, one white. And one 
asked questions, looked in the eye of the doctor, asked him questions about, you know, his body, about his health spoke up, you know, and that was the child from the black family. But right. he was just taught to speak up, whereas the other one was poor, came from lower income family right. and was taught to just, you know, be quiet and let adults speak. And mm-hmm. you don't question the doctor. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a break and let's get into the story of Henrietta Flax. How does that sound? Sounds good. Henrietta Lax. Sorry. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> back. Alexis, can you please give us some background on our author, Rebecca Sklute, and perhaps her inspiration for The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? Okay. Um, So Rebecca Sklute is the daughter of writers. Um, One parent wrote Knitter and Pattern Books after working as a healthcare executive, and the other parent wrote poems, novels, and essays. She was a veterinarian, Rebecca was a veterinarian technician for about 10 years, and then she went to receive her bachelor's degree in biological sciences. She would later receive a master's in fine arts and creative nonfiction. Wow. Rebecca was um, has taught creative writing and science journalism at the University of Pittsburgh, New York University and the University of Memphis. Um, the book we're covering today was her first book. And it was published in 2010. It made the New York Times bestseller list and it was selected as the best book of the year by over 60 publications. It received a whole bunch of other awards and honors as well. The book was made into a film which starred Oprah Winfrey. Um, The book took more than a decade to research and write. And Rebecca founded the Henrietta Lacks Foundation which helps people like Henrietta who have unknowingly made contributions to scientific research without benefiting. And that's what I have. I don't have any. um, Oh, but her inspiration, I do know her inspiration. Mm -hmm. It's actually in the book. In the book, she says that she learned about Henrietta Lacks through her um, when she was 16 years old and she was in her biology class, which was a college level class that she needed to take. And the instructor, instructor was, like, was mm-hmm. speaking about it. And he said, blah, 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 Henrietta Lacks. And he talked about HeLa cells and what they'd done and how much they'd accomplished. And he said, and she was a black woman. Thank you. Have a nice day. (laughs) Raised her name and moved on. She's like, what? Gila cells come from Henrietta Lacks? What's this about? And then her curiosity just led to over a decade of research in a book. Right. And it's a skill to be able to write history in a way that is engaging, that has storytelling elements while just being factual. It reminds me of um, Isabel Wilkerson's um, writing also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Um, Perhaps you can give us a brief synopsis of this book (laughs) with no spoilers, of course. All right. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm going to do one of your moves. Rebecca Skluth narrates the story of learning about Henrietta Lacks, the woman whose cells were unknowingly taken during her cervical cancer treatment. The cells would become known as HeLa and would lead to some of the world's greatest medical advancements. 
Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? So I'm going to go back to the Warmth of Other Suns um, cast. If you like reading that anthropological, um, factual, nonfic, but in a storytelling format, I mean, if you told me this was a novel, I would, oh, I can't talk about if I enjoy the book or not. But I have to say that the flow, it just feels very engaging, even though you're basically reading a history book, <laughs> you know? So if you like that, um, it's not if a first like person history. narrative like the autobiography, like an autobiography, but um, it, it just really puts you in the time and place. Of, of this specific event. So if that's your cup of tea, I believe you'd love this book. And Alexis, what were your first thoughts of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks? You know, I can't, I tried to think back to when I first uh, learned about this story, but I couldn't remember anything. But I do know that it, what I did know interests me. Mm-hmm. So I was ready to dive into the book even though it's been on my to be read list for a really Years. long time, <laughs> a really long time. I really wanted to look into this um, account about a woman and her cells being taken. Yeah. My husband's been watching this movie and I've been like avoiding it like the plague until we read this. So love it. All right. Well, you ready to take a deep dive into the book? Yeah, I am. Spoiler filled spoilers coming. Okay, Alexis, take it away. Let the spoilers begin. Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell this a little differently, but I am going to need your support in a lot of ways, but closer to the end. All right. Part one, Rebecca. Rebecca was 16 when she first learned about Henrietta Lacks, just as we talked about. Community college, biology class, 1988. Picture it. (laughs) High school credits needed. The instructor was explaining the cell reproductive cycle and he listed Henrietta Lacks on the board, explained that her parts were part of research and into the genes that cause cancer and those that suppress it. Henrietta's cells helped develop drugs for herpes, leukemia, influenza and other conditions, as well as those um, used to study appendicitis, STDs, human longevity and other things. Her cells were standards in laboratories around the world. And the instructor said HeLa cells were one of the most important things that happened to medicine in the last hundred years. He concluded by saying she was a black woman. (laughs) No more information to share. Rebecca's interest was piqued. Where was she from? Did she know how important her cells were? Did she have any children? Rebecca wanted to know more. Okay, it would be 11 years after learning about Henrietta before she would take this deep dive into who was Henrietta Lacks. Rebecca came across a collection of scientific papers from something called the Gila Cancer Control Symposium at Morehouse School of Medicine. It was organized in Henrietta's honor by Roland Patillo a professor of gynecology at Morehouse who'd been the only African-American student of a cell biologist named George Guy. And we'll talk about him shortly. Rebecca told Roland she wanted to write a book about Henrietta Lack. She -hmm. told him about her Gila obsession. Roland immediately told her that Henrietta's family wouldn't talk to her. They had had a terrible time um, 
from the pressure associated with people wanting to know about the Gila cells. He grilled Rebecca for about an hour. um, Sound like three days. (laughs) Her intentions for telling. He just started. um, He also told her that when she called him at that very same mm-hmm. moment, she was at, he was actually starting to organize the next Gila conference and had just typed in Henrietta's name on the screen when she called. Roland decided to share some information with Rebecca. He knew she didn't know. He told her that Henrietta's daughter was Deborah. Deborah had an older sister who was epileptic and died at 15 shortly after Henrietta's death. Deborah recently came near a stroke again because of all the pressure and stress associated with inquiries about her mother and her mother's cells. He left Rebecca hanging and said he had to go take care of some patients and that she should call tomorrow. For the next three days, she was grilled. Patillo gave um, Rebecca's Deborah's phone number. Mm -hmm. So he's like, you seem sincere, you know, but this family has had a lot of seemingly sincere people, Mm -hmm. you know, bug them to nearly death, literally. Yeah. Just wanting something from them. Yeah. You know, he also gave her a list of do's and don'ts on how to approach Deborah, the family in general, but specifically Deborah. When Rebecca reached out to Deborah. She was met with Deborah's excitement about the idea of having a book written about Henrietta and not the sales. She, mm-hmm. um, in Deborah's mind, her mom's story needed to be told. Mm-hmm. No, let's not talk about the sales anymore. Rebecca didn't expect the reaction she received based on her conversation with Patillo and listened carefully, took notes. Deborah crammed in a lifetime of information into 40 minute, 45 <laughs> minute call, jumping from the 1920s to the 1990s. Stories about the family, about strangers. Deborah ended the call by telling Rebecca to call back on Monday. <laughs> Rebecca called back on Monday. She was met with a different person. Deborah sounded heavily sedated. Deborah told Rebecca, no interviews. Her brothers told her she should write the book herself. Mm-hmm. She gave her the phone number of her brothers and her father, and Deborah hung up. Yeah, she said, talk to the man- men. If they give you the okay, maybe I'll talk to you again, basically. Rebecca would not speak to Deborah for nearly a year mm-hmm. after this conversation. Moments after hanging up the phone with Patillo, his list of do's and don'ts in my hand, I dialed Deborah's number, then paced as her phone rang. When she whispered, hello, I blurted out, I'm so excited you answered because I've been wanting to talk to you for years. I'm writing a book about your mother. Huh? She said. I didn't know that Deborah was nearly deaf. She relied heavily on lip reading and couldn't follow anyone who talked fast. I took a deep breath and tried again, forcing myself to sound out every syllable. Hi. My name is Rebecca. How you doing? She said, weary but warm. I'm very excited to talk to you. Mm-hmm. She said, like she'd heard that line many times before. I told her again that I wanted to write a book about her mother and said I was surprised no one seemed to know anything about her, even though her cells were so important for science. Deborah sat silent for a moment, then screamed, That's right! She giggled and started talking like we'd known each other for years. 
Everything always just about the cells and don't even worry about her name. And was Hela even a person? So hallelujah, I think a book would be great. This was not what I expected. I was afraid to say anything that might make her stop talking. So I simply said, great. And that was the last word I spoke until the end of our call. I didn't ask a single question, just took notes as fast as I could. Deborah crammed a lifetime of information into a manic, confusing 45 minutes that jumped without warning. And in no particular order from the 1920s to the 1990s, from stories of her father to her grandmother, cousins, mother, and total strangers. Nobody never said nothing. She told me, I mean, where my mother clothes at? Where my mother's shoes? I knew about her watch and ring, but it was stolen. That was after my brother killed that boy. She talked about a man she didn't name saying, I didn't think it was fit for him to steal my mother's medical records and autopsy papers. He was in prison for 15 years in Alabama. Now he's saying John Hopkins killed my mother and them white doctors experimented on her because she was black. My nerve broke down. She said, I just couldn't take it. My speech is coming back a little better. I almost had two strokes in two weeks because all that stuff with my mother's cells. Then suddenly she was talking about her family history, saying something about the hospital for crazy Negroes and her mother's great grandfather having been a slave owner. We all mixed and one of my mother's sisters converted to Puerto Rican. Again and again, she said, I can't take it anymore. And who are we supposed to trust now? More than anything, she told me, she wanted to learn about her mother and what her cells had done for science. She said people had been promising her information for decades and never delivering it. I'm sick of it, she said. You know what I really want? I want to know what did my mother smell like? For all my life, I just don't know anything, not even the little common little things like what color she like, what she like to dance, did she like to dance? Did she breastfeed me? Lord, I'd like to know. But nobody ever say nothing. She laughed and said, I tell you one thing, the story not over yet. You got your work cut out for you, girl. This thing's crazy enough for three books. Then someone walked through her front door and Deborah yelled straight into the receiver. Good morning. I got mail. She sounded panicked by the idea of it. Oh, my God. Oh, no mail. OK, Miss Rebecca. She said, I got to go. You call me Monday. Promise? Okay, dear. Good, good. Uh-huh. God bless. Bye-bye. She hung up and I sat stunned. Receiver crooked in my neck, frantically scribbling notes I didn't understand, like brother equals murder, male equals bad, man stole Henrietta's medical records, and hospital for Negro insane? When I called Deborah back as promised, she sounded like a different person. Her voice was monotone, depressed, and slurred, like she was heavily sedated. No interviews. She mumbled almost incoherently. You gotta go away. My brothers say I should write my own book, but I ain't a writer. I'm sorry. I tried to speak, but she cut me off. I can't talk to you no more. Only thing to do is convince the men. She gave me three phone numbers, her father, her oldest brother, Lawrence, and her brother, David Jr.'s pager. Everybody call him Sonny, she told me, then hung up. I wouldn't hear her voice again for nearly a year. Now, let's flash back to 1951, and I'll tell you Henrietta's stories. Part two. On April 29th, 1951, 
David Lax drove his wife to John Hopkins Hospital with their children in the backseat, two still in diapers. Henrietta told the receptionist that she had a knot on her womb and the doctor needed to look at it. Before her visit, by more than a year, Henrietta had told her closest girlfriends, her cousins, Margaret and Sadie, that she had a knot inside her. She was telling them that intimacy with her husband was painful. When she experienced the pain, she thought it had to do with just having given birth to Deborah, her youngest at the time, or an STD from her husband Mm because he was a philanderer. Mm -hmm. The cousins told her that maybe she was pregnant outside the womb, though. And Henrietta's like, nope, that's not pregnancy. There's something there. There's a knot. They told her to get it checked out. Henrietta didn't go get it checked out. This was a time when people didn't talk about cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Henrietta was concerned that the doctor would take away her ability to have children. Mm-hmm. A week after telling her cousins her concern, Henrietta learned she was pregnant with her fifth child. And her cousin says, well, that's probably what it had to do with. You were mm-hmm. pregnant. We said that already. Well, they implied it might be a, an ectopic pregnancy. And she just knew her body. She was like, no, something's right. It's not that. Mm-hmm. And then she got pregnant. She was like, eh, something still ain't right. Yep. For months, four months after she birthed her son, Henrietta experienced abnormal bleeding and told her husband she needed to go to the doctor. The doctor saw the lump that Henrietta referred to and tested her for syphilis, which came back negative. He directed Henrietta to John Hopkins, which at the time was a charity hospital. And I don't know, it may still be a charity hospital for the sick and poor in East Baltimore. John Hopkins was the only major hospital for miles that would treat black patients. And it's called Johns Hopkins. But because the family calls it John Hopkins in the book, it's referred to as John Hopkins. And I like that. There's a note in the beginning about how um, something she just kept because that's the way the family she wanted it to be authentic. She wasn't trying to clean quote unquote, clean their language. Um, one family member said, once you start changing the way people speak, you start trying to erase them, basically. Ooh, that is so true. Yeah. We have seen that in other books. So don't be getting on Alexis for saying John Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's saying in the book. Oh, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. <laughs> Hopkins was nearly 20 miles away from her home. And that for them was like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Not bad, but. But then also remember, this was Jim Crow era. Yeah, it ain't next door. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about her visit to the doctor. Howard Jones was the gynecologist on duty, and he read her medical records before he saw her. The medical records revealed that she was a wife and mother to five children. She had difficulty breathing since childhood because um, oh, I can't remember what it was from. Was it some asthma? throat issues, mm-hmm. mm, some throat issues. She had a deviated septum. She had an, a tooth extracted that had been bad for five years. Her only anxiety was her oldest daughter was an epileptic who couldn't talk. She lived in a happy household, was an occasional drinker. She had 10 siblings. One died in a car accident, one from rheumatic heart, and one was poisoned. She'd been with her husband since the age of 15. She doesn't enjoy sex relations. Um, She's asymptomatic for syphilis, but canceled syphilis treatments because she felt fine. Mm -hmm. 
Two months prior to her current visit, after the delivery of her fifth child, she had significant urine in the blood. Um, The physician recommended diagnostics, referred the patient to a specialist to rule out infection or cancer. The patient canceled the appointments. And one month prior to her current visit, patient tested positive for gonorrhea. Patient Mm -hmm. recalled to the clinic, was recalled to the clinic for treatment, but she did not come. The doctor noted in Henrietta's chart, she says that she knew there was something wrong with the neck of her room. When asked why she knew it, she said that she felt as if there were a lump there. I do not quite know what she means by this unless she actually palpated this area. And Mm -hmm. she had done that Mm -hmm. before she decided to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. The doctor examined Henrietta, saw the lump. It was a hard mash the size of a nickel and he'd never seen anything like it. He said it was shiny and purple like grape jello. Mm. It was delicate. It bled at the slightest touch. He cut a small sample, sent it off to the lab for diagnosis. Henrietta was sent home. Uh, He further noted that Henrietta delivered a baby on September 19th, 1950 at Hopkins and There was no note made about the mass or at her six-week return. Yet three months later, she had a full-fledged tumor. So either it was missed or the tumor had grown at an alarming rate. I'm Mm going to go with it. It was missed. Or both. No, cancerous tumors are crazy. So I could believe that. But she had already been feeling it. Yeah. A problem for years already. Yeah. So I think it was ignored. Mm. A few days later, a a biopsy results revealed that Henrietta had epidermoid carcinoma of the cervix stage one. Let's go back to Henrietta growing up. Part three. She was born in Virginia in 1920. Her mother died in 1924, giving birth to her 10th child. Her father took the children to Clover, Virginia, where his family lived and farmed tobacco fields and their ancestors worked as slaves. The children were split up. All 10 children were divided among the family members. Henrietta lived with her grandfather. Her grandfather was already raising another grandchild Mm -hmm. and his name was David Lacks, who everybody called Day. He was nine. Henrietta, four. Day and Henrietta grew up together. And they started having children together Mm -hmm. at the age of 14. Lawrence was the first child. And then they had another child four years later, Elsie. And Elsie had epilepsy. Elsie came out so quick, they said she hit her head on the floor before her husband could come home, before the husband could come back with the midwife. Mm -hmm. The family believed that that incident left her mind like an infant. Henrietta and Day married in 1941. She was 20. He was 25. At 21, she moved to, they, the family, moved to Baltimore. Well, he had been there a year, I think, already. Mm-hmm. Part four, doctors, cells, and a bit of science. Okay, so cancers originate from a single cell that's gone wrong and are categorized based on the type of cell they start with. That's cancer. Henrietta came to Hopkins at a time when her gynecologist and his boss, Wesley Talend, were involved in a nationwide debate about what qualified as cervical cancer Mm -hmm. and how best to treat it. 
Talind was one of the top cervical experts in the country. He pioneered the use of estrogen for treating symptoms of menopause and made early discoveries about endometriosis. He'd written the most famous clinical um, gynecology textbook, which as of 2010 was still widely used. He had an international reputation. By the time Henrietta arrived at Hopkins, Talind had developed a theory about cervical cancer that, if correct, could save the lives of millions of women. But people didn't believe him. He needed more studies. He needed uh, people to study on. Listen, (laughs) listen, that was just different back then. It was, you know. I mean, they were different. Anyway, mm-hmm. Talind um, said that there were two types of carcinomas. There's an invasive type that penetrates the cervix, the surface of the cervix, and then a non-invasive that hasn't penetrated mm-hmm. the surface. The non-invasive are called carcinoma in situ or cancer in its original place. In 1951, most doctors believed that carcinoma in situ couldn't spread. Mm-hmm. Talin disagreed. He believed that carcinoma in situ was the early stage of invasive carcinoma and that left, if left untreated, became deadly. Talin believed aggressive treatment was necessary and would remove the cervix, the uterus, most of the vagina, and that would drastically reduce cervical cancer death. You know, back then they was really taking all your stuff. Mm-hmm. All your stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it just didn't matter. It didn't matter. So, so science is limited, right? And um, it, 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 in a way, they're doing the best they can to yeah, save women's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're practicing. Mm-hmm. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. So, as you practice, you learn. Yeah. Uh, so, they would take out everything. They would err on the side of caution, take out everything up in there, and uh, then they're like, "Yay, we got rid of the cancer." Maybe all they needed to take was one ovary, but they didn't know that. Yeah. The diagnosing of carcinoma in side two um, became available about 10 years earlier through the use of pap smears. And many women weren't getting tested. When they did get the test, the doctors, very (laughs) few doctors knew how to interpret it. Right. And so they didn't know there were various stages of cancer when they looked at the microscope, when they were looking in the microscope. So science is advancing quicker than the scientific professionals can keep up with. Mm -hmm. So there's this new test that can really prevent some deaths, but women aren't getting it. And when they do get it, the doctors are like, what do I do with this? Mm. Take out everything. Yeah. Hysterectomy. There was all kind of problems with that because they didn't understand Mm -hmm. what it looked like. There were misdiagnoses. Um, mistreatment and again they're removing all organs when really they only had um, an infection and they need antibiotics yeah sometimes it was completely treatable like just take this pill and in two weeks you'll be fine yeah yeah nope hysterectomy and i saw you walking crooked when you came in here so you're feeble-minded hysterectomy (laughs) (laughs) that was happening Mm -hmm. what's two plus two quick hysterectomy (laughs) Wait, I just have my You're feeble-minded. And that means you're promiscuous, too. <laughs> I can't true. even say it. They go together. Fergie, help. <gasps> uh, anyway. Nelly Potato. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so Lynn wanted to um, 
minimize unjustifiable hysterectomies by documenting what wasn't cervical cancer and by urging surgeons to verify pap smear results with biopsies before operating. Mm -hmm. He also wanted to prove that women with carcinoma in situ needed aggressive treatment. I remember in situ is when it's cancer at its original place. So it's on the outside. It hasn't yet penetrated the inside of the uterus. And he's like, nah, treat these women like it is going to come to the inside because it will. Because cancer is crazy Mm -hmm. and it's really aggressive. Yep. Talendi had presented his argument, as I said, at that conference, and he was heckled by his colleagues. Well, a lot of them didn't know. They didn't get it. And it was kind of like, it's like, who's this new guy? He think he know everything. He ain't that he new. He wasn't new. That's he true. had produced stuff. Even worse. I'm trying to get a name for myself in these streets. He out here treating royalty. For real. It was like a Queen of Jordan or something. She was like, the only one that can operate on me. I don't know their accent. Okay. It's this guy. I didn't bother memorizing his name. Um, And so he's being famous. And there's some jealousy, I'm sure, amongst his colleagues. Oh, quickly. Of course, they care about science. You know, they want to see it progress, but at their hands. Okay. So he's coming up with these ideas that need to be... repeated and repeated and repeated to prove theories. And they like, why should we help you? Yeah. So (laughs) how could he prove he was right? Well, he set out to review all the medical records and biopsies from patients who'd been diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer at Hopkins in the past decade to see how many initially started with carcinoma in situ. Mm -hmm. He would use the patients from the public wards for research without their knowledge. Scientists believe that um, patients treated there for free were fair use as research subjects as a form of payment. Mm. His study resulted, his study results revealed that 62% of women with invasive cancer who had earlier biopsies first had carcinoma in situ. So his stuff was coming true. Yeah. Cancer isn't just going to stay put. It goes where it wants. Mm -hmm. He also wanted to find a way to grow living samples from normal cervical tissue and both types of cancerous tissue, allowing him to make comparisons of all three, something that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. He wanted to prove that carcinoma in situ and invasive carcinoma looked and behaved similarly in the lab. Enter George Guy. You remember I talked about him earlier? Yeah, the world's most famous vulture is what he <laughs> called himself. Yeah. yeah, that's what he, that's, that's what he did. He was the head of tissue culture research at Hopkins. Guy and his wife had spent the last three decades working to grow malignant cells outside the body, hoping to use them to find cancer's cause and cure. But most cells died quickly and the few that survived hardly grew at all. The guys were determined to grow the first immortal human cells, a continuously dividing line of cells all descended from one original sample cell that could constantly replenish itself and never die. This had already been accomplished in 1943 with the use of mouse cells. They wanted to do it for human cells. Mm -hmm. Enter Henrietta Lacks. Let's jump back to her treatment. 
Part five, Henrietta's treatment and death. Henrietta was told her results on February 5th, 1951. And she told nobody. She told her husband she needed to go back to the hospital for tests and medicine. She told him, hey, nothing serious wrong. Mm -hmm. Doctor's going to fix me right up. Henrietta's tumor was invasive. And at Hopkins, all invasive carcinomas cervical were treated with radium, a white radioactive metal that glows blue. Harry, do you know, what do you know about radium? Um, Nothing. It's like a power source, too. That's all I know. And very, very, like, dangerous. Like, yeah. you shouldn't be handling it. You definitely shouldn't be inserting it in people and telling them, just lead us in you for a week and come back and we'll take it out. Yeah. And you shouldn't be putting it in your pocket like it's some coins. But they was doing all this. Yeah, it was deadly. It um, was, had been used since the 1900s um, to treat uh, cervical cancer for its ability to destroy the cancer cells. Um, it was discovered by um, Marie and Pierre. It's okay, girl. Marie Curie and Pierre Curie. Yes. Regular exposure to radium kills. Regular. So people that came in contact with it. It kills everything, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Regular yeah. exposure to it. Yeah, yeah. It kills. Yeah, Before yeah. the radium treatment mm-hmm. was started, the surgeon collected samples from Henrietta's cervix for Guy and to Lind. Henrietta's record noted biopsy of cervical tissue, tissue given to Dr. George Guy. The radium had terrible side effects, but there was not a record of Henrietta having any. Mm -hmm. She didn't complain of anything that was reported back to the doctor. We don't know of anything in the family. Henrietta returned for a second radiate radium. Why do I want to call it radiation? It was radium treatment. Well, that's where it comes from, but yeah. And the doctors liked the results. Mm -hmm. The cervix was a bit inflamed from the first treatment, but the tumor was shrinking. That's progress, right? Mm -hmm. Even though her outsides were black now. They weren't that black yet. So they were like, keep coming back. This seems to be working. So let's keep doing it. Next stage. Mm-hmm. X-ray therapy, which she would need to get every weekday for a month. So she needed some support now because her husband worked nights and she. Um, well, she think, needed transportation yeah. um, there. And then after the procedure, she would have to like rest nearby. Right. So yeah. her husband got uh, bought, was available to pick her up. Yeah. Yep, so yep. she was going to have to tell someone she trusted. About what was going on. Uh, She would have to say cancer. And no one said cancer. No one said cancer. But she told her cousins. And she repeated. This nothing was serious. Mm -hmm. Wrong with her. I'm fine. And according to doctors, that was true. The radium was working. They even fixed her deviated septum because how positive her outlook was. Yeah. So they gave her a nose job because her um, nose is giving her problems, like actual problems. And they was like, well, you about to live a long life. So let's go ahead and fix that too. Yep. The radiate, the radiation treatment um, was to make sure that there was no cancer cells left inside. And then this is when her, she was turning black on the inside from the radiation outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From her like breast down to her, Pelvis. Mm-hmm. After her treatment, she would go to her cousin's house and her husband would pick her up after he got off of work. 
She never complained about being sick. And at mm-hmm. one point, Henrietta asked when she could start having babies again. The doctors told her, um, didn't you know this treatment make you infertile? And she was like, if I had known that, I would have never agreed to the first treatment. Oh, we didn't tell you. Yeah. Whatever. Infertility warnings with cancer treatment um, was standard practice at Hopkins. However, there is no record of the um, telling Henrietta prior to the treatment. Three weeks after Henrietta started x-ray therapy, she was diagnosed with acute gonorrhea superimposed on radiation reaction. So she's already suffering with first the cancer, then the treatment for the cancer. It actually is painful in her insides. Okay. It is like burning through her. Okay. Um, And then the gonorrhea happens and her husband go, I think you done gave me something. Because you sick and now I have a discharge. And the doctor quietly notes it's likely the other way around. Mm-hmm. So now it's like her body is consumed with fire all the time. She burning alive. <laughs> it's so funny. Terrible. It's painful. I know it is. Oh, that sounds and she's not a complainer. So she's, she's cooking obviously. for people. She's cleaning. She's caring for her children, her husband, all the while burning alive. In June of 1951, Henrietta told doctors several times that she thought the cancer was spreading. Mm-hmm. Her records state the patient states she feels fairly well. However, she continues to complain of some vague lower abdominal discomfort. No evidence of recurrence return in a month. This is what she would get regularly. Most patients in the 1950s deferred to Anything the doctor said, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, you don't question a doctor. This was referred to at the time as benevolent deception. Doctors often withheld basic information, sometimes not even giving a diagnosis. They believed that it was best not to confuse or upset patients with frightening terms such as cancer. Cancer. Because they might not understand it. (laughs) Doctors knew best. Most patients didn't question that, especially Black patients in public wards, which Hopkins was, and they were just glad to be getting treatment. Mm -hmm. However, two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, Henrietta was found to have an inoperable stony hard mask on her pelvic wall. According to doctor's notes, she looked chronically ill and obviously in pain. She was sent home to her bed. Her cancer was spreading she was given further radiation in hopes that it would relieve her pain. Not treat her for the cancer. So at this point, so like two weeks ago, a, a doctor wrote in her chart, she's fine. She's got some discomfort, but she's fine. Um, our procedure worked. We're great. Yay, us. He wrote that in her chart. Mm-hmm. And then like two weeks the, later. Yeah, yeah, part two, right? Yeah. And then two re- weeks later, a doctor wrote, she gonna die. It's nothing we can do. Aw. And he wrote that aw, A-W, period. And told the family, keep bringing her for radiation treatments. And her family's like, oh, they're going to get her better. Meanwhile, the doctors are like, she's definitely going to die. But maybe these radiation treatments can alleviate some of the pain. Yeah. Because she's a miserable specimen. Miserable That's how they specimen. referred to her. By August, Henrietta wanted to stay at the hospital. Records state, patient has been complaining bitterly of pain and seems genuinely miserable. She has come in from a considerable distance and it is felt that she deserves to be in the hospital 
where she can be better cared for. So she was like, I don't want to leave. I'm in a lot of pain. Y'all got to do something. I won't make it home. And they were like, yeah, we agree. Just stay here. I mean, this, I, we won't charge you that much. We have been stealing bits of your body piece by piece every time you come in. So, you know, this can be our payment. New tumors seem to appear daily. Doctors stopped the radiation treatment. By September of 1951, Henrietta's body was almost entirely taken over by tumors. They blocked her intestines and made her belly swell like she was six months pregnant. Hmm. Henrietta died October 4th, 1951 at 12.51 a.m. And this was really sad because um, her husband used to come by with the kids. And then when they left, she would cry for hours. So the hospital staff was like, stop bringing over them kids because it make her too sad. So then she would have to look at the kids from through the window, look downstairs at her children playing near the hospital. Um, But eventually she couldn't even get up and go to the window. So she died. And everyone was like, we going to go see mama. And they was like, you ain't got no mama now. What a switch. Mm-hmm. In fact, go get the switch because I'm going to beat you for asking about your mama. So after her death, they wanted more cell samples from Henrietta, but they required permission. <laughs> so it's different from living to death. Now, yeah, that you get happens, a little more respect when you did a little bit more, just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Her husband was like, nope. I don't want no autopsy. No, no, I don't, mm, mm-hmm. don't touch my lady. And they said, but your kids might get what she had. Don't you care about your kids? You got a lot of them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And he went in there and put the X on the paper as well. Yeah. For what he thought was just an autopsy. He was like, well, let's figure out how she dies so we can stop it in our children. Yeah. But they only agreed. He only agreed to a partial autopsy, which limited what they could take. And as Kari mentioned, um, the children then then mistreated because other family members moved in. So there was this cousin, okay? So the cousins are marrying each other. It's the South. It's her sister. It's Gladys, right? No. This is a cousin. But Henrietta was gorgeous, kind. Everyone loved being around her. So this family member was always jealous of her, it seems. So when Henrietta died, the family member moved in with her husband and was like, we're going to take care of these kids. And she just used the time to torture the children to get back at dead Henrietta for whatever Uh, And, you know, whatever jealousy or whatever issues she had with her. So she would torture the children. She wouldn't. She wasn't just torture them. She wasn't just curt with them and mean and unkind. She would torture them to the point where the youngest boy developed some mental issues and some issues with violence. She would like lock him in dark basements and make him what stand on one leg or something stupid. And if she came down and the leg was down, she would beat him. And she would just beat them constantly, beating them into the hospital. And the dad was just there, just like, whatever. He would not stand up for them. There are two youngest children. I forget the youngest name, maybe Joel. Joel. Mm-hmm. So Joe and Deborah are the youngest children. They're so young. I think Deborah's four when her mom dies. They don't even remember Henrietta. Um, so the youngest boy is the one that's tortured a lot. There is a, a middle child. He's like 16 and he lies and says he's 18 so he can hang out in like pubs and stuff. But then the draft sunny. comes. Sunny. Yeah, sunny. sunny. Mm-hmm. But then the draft comes. It's like, you 18, huh? Come to war. 
So he gets sent to war. Okay. Mm. 16 years old. He's in the war. Uh, He comes back home. He seems to be beautiful too, like really attractive. Um, But he settles down with a girl and that girl goes and they have a child together. Okay. They get married. They have a child together. But that woman, Sonny's wife is exceptional because she learns that them kids is being beat. These are her her husband's Lawrence's children. Uh, Lawrence's wife. Who's Lawrence? The oldest brother. Okay, fine. Maybe not Sonny. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of wife in here. Okay, <laughs> it's a lot of kids. So that wife says, "Go get your brothers and sisters," and she starts raising them as if they're her own. Amazing. She heard they were getting beat by their um, cousins, whoever was the caretaker, and she got them a young wife. She got all them bad kids. <laughs> Actually. It's supposed, yeah, they were supposedly they were mistreated and they were actually very good they children. They were mistreated. They were, yeah. We um, but she that. got all of them troubled children and brought them in her house and was loving on them. Right. And in fact, real quickly, Deborah, who's the uh, one that was four, grows up to be 10. And that cousin, who I believe was the cousin who was um, beating them, her husband start molesting uh, Deborah. And Deborah is like, I'm going to speak up for her herself or myself because that cousin who was molesting her even punched her in the face in front of her father and her father did nothing. 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 So Deborah would lock herself in the closet. Okay. When um, that wife of her brother, who was the good, the good one found Deborah. She was like, if you don't tell me anything, I won't know anything. Mm-hmm. So Deborah tells her a little, don't tell her everything. She's like, yeah, he hits me. She doesn't say that that family member is molesting her. Um, but that was enough. But that wife went to that house and told them if they touch any, any of Henrietta Lacks kids again, what she say she going to do? Something violent. Something violent. And I believed her. Yeah. She really loved those children. She so did. anyway, um, she told Deborah, look, you're going to go to school. You're going to make something of yourself. I know that your mom and your dad were cousins and all y'all cousins is sick and nasty, but that ain't going to be you. <laughs> she said, no, don't do that. If one of your cousins try to force himself on you, you speak up for yourself. You champion yourself. And I got your back. And Deborah was like, mm, okay, thank you. I really don't want to be molested, but I also kind of like this boy in the neighborhood. So Deborah got pregnant very young from that boy. And they eventually got married, right? Yeah. Yeah. They originally got married. And the wife, uh, her her brother's wife was like, ah, 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 I hate that that happened, but you still gonna go to school. And Deborah was like, I really just want to say, ah, and you're going to go to work. <laughs> you're going to work. You're going to finish school. Yeah. These things shall be accomplished. So she wasn't even part of the family. Once she married the brother, she gave everybody structure. <laughs> they obviously needed hey, cousins, it. Everybody stand on opposite sides of the room. Go to school. Get jobs. <laughs> Novel idea. Yeah. Okay. I'm she only was- married to this man because he's fine. You see him, he's fine. And I'm taking care of y'all because I got a lot of love to give. Okay. Y'all ain't gonna be just in the house <laughs> crazy. Okay. Marrying it. What not? Yeah. Okay. So you're correct. It was not Gladys. It was Ethel. Ethel. Oh, Ethel was evil. Ethel, Ethel was so and evil. Galen. Ethel was ugly. And then she moved in the house and started messing around with Henrietta's husband. With her husband. So there. her and her husband moved into the house. Her husband started molesting the kid, probably multiple children, and then um, Ethel started messing around with Henrietta's husband. Henrietta then just died. 
Okay. And that immediately happened. And everyone liked Henrietta. This was the only person on earth that didn't. And she get access to the kids. And she's their their cousins. <sighs> and cousins. Gladys tried to warn y'all. Cousin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Our six. Hila <laughs> sells. When gay, I don't even want to talk about the cells no more. I want to talk about Henrietta. Okay. I'm with the daughter on this one. Enough of the cells already. We're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up. Okay. When Guy, the head of cell culture research, received Henrietta cells, they were placed in his assistant's cubicle. She knew she shouldn't wait to get started, but she was tired of cell culture, tired of having cells die after hours of work. The guys worked to develop the perfect culture medium for feeding and growing cells. The recipe was ever evolving. Car, do you remember what the recipe was? No, I don't. The plasma of chickens, the puree of cafe fetuses, special salts and blood from the human umbilical cord. Rebecca said it sounded like a witch's brew. Um, They would grab a chicken, hold it down. And stick a needle in its heart and pull out the blood. Mm-hmm. And if the chicken died, they'd eat it. This is the doctor. This is the guy. Yeah. Really creepy stuff. Really creepy stuff. The assistant was thoroughly trained in the procedure for feeding cells and keeping the cells from being contaminated. The assistant labeled the tubes of Henrietta cells as Gila or Henrietta Lacks, the first two of her first and last name, and carried them safely to the incubator room. While Henrietta was in the hospital recovering from her first radium treatment, her cells were growing with mythological intensity. So Margaret, who's the assistant, is a stickler for uh, sanitation. She Gila's uh, progression is as much due to Guy, it seems, as it is to Margaret. Um, his assistant, she was medically trained and she knew that like you had to wash your hands before surgery. <laughs> this is a medical breakthrough. Washing of the hands. She knew all about washing Sanitation hands. Sanitation process was very important. Yes, yes, yes. And they didn't just take Henrietta Lacks's uh, cells without her consent. They had been doing this for a while, as Alexis said. And she was Margaret was sick of these cells dying, these stolen cells. She's like, it's, this don't even work. Yeah. So when the assistant divided the Content of the cells, the cells doubled in size within 24 hours. Guy waited for the cells to die, but they never did. As long as the cells had food and warmth, Henrietta's cells seemed unstoppable. When Guy told his close associates that he may have grown the first immortal human cells, his colleagues replied, can I get some? He said, sure. Three weeks after Henrietta started radiation therapy, Guy appeared on TV. For a special show devoted to his work, he gave a basic overview of cell structure and cancer using diagrams. He even showed bottles of massive quantities of cancer cells. Most likely they were Henrietta's cells and said, it is quite possible that from fundamental studies such as these, that we will be able to learn a way by which cancer cells can be damaged or completely wiped out. Guy began sending Henrietta cells to any scientist for use for cancer research. Mm -hmm. He never mentioned Henrietta or her cells by name. So the general public knew nothing of Gila. Now, let's jump back to 1999, part seven. Rebecca meets the lax. Mm -hmm. 
If you recall, Rebecca was attempting to reach out to the family. She called Deborah, Henrietta's youngest girl, and Deborah was told, um, contact my brothers and father. Rebecca was told by Deborah to contact her brothers and father. Yeah, talk to the men and maybe we'll speak. Yeah. Rebecca started calling the family, but to no end, to no avail. After several messages, someone answered at Day's house. Now, Day is her father, if you remember. A young boy answered and yelled, Pop, ladies on the phone about your wife's sales. Rebecca was confused by this response, but would learn that only white people called. About the sale. Whenever white people called, it was about the sales. Mm -hmm. So he knew right away. Yep. When Day answered the phone, he said, you got the wife's sales? Mm Mm-hmm. You talking to her? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, talk, talk to themselves to <laughs> and don't talk to me. Don't don't <laughs> deal with me. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't trying. They wasn't trying to deal with nobody new. They have gone through a lot mm-hmm. in the past years with um, the Gila cells and all the information. She then reaches out and connects with Sonny, um, one of Henrietta and Dave's children, the one that Kyrie mentioned. He was, or was it Sonny or Lawrence, he said? It was Sonny. Okay. Um, he was tired of seeing Rebecca's phone number on his pager. <laughs> so um, he reached out to Patillo, if you remember, the professor of Morehouse. Um, he was trying to protect the family from one more person digging in, trying to get information and not mm-hmm. truly being helpful. Mm-hmm. Sonny told Rebecca that he would take her to see his brother and father and maybe Deborah when she got to Baltimore. Um, Rebecca would travel from Pittsburgh. When she arrived, Sonny ghosted her. Mm-hmm. Rebecca started looking for lax family members in the phone book, addresses, whatever she can find in the phone book that was in the hotel. She even started reading a 1976 Rolling Stone article about the lax family so she can have the information fresh in mind, ready to talk about it. Realizing quickly that the writer of the article was probably doing the same thing she did, looking oh, through that book, yeah. that phone book, trying to find family members. He had probably been ghosted, too. Mm-hmm. She started um, calling the names, but to no success. People were like, who is her Rietta? Oh, I don't know her. Mm-hmm. I don't, you and know. who is Rebecca? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Given the complete runaround. Mm-hmm. She started. Um, then she found an address and she went to that address, which was Turner Station, where she met Courtney Speed. Courtney Speed owned a grocery store and created a foundation devoted to building a Henrietta Lacks Museum. When Speed learned what Rebecca would do, Speed directed Rebecca to the library, where she told Rebecca to watch a BBC documentary about Henrietta and the Gila, something Rebecca had been trying to access for months. When she got back to her hotel, she actually connected with Sonny. And he said, you know what? I don't want to meet you. Yeah. Go ask my family in Clover if that's what you want to do. Yeah. I wish you the best. <laughs> and then he laughed. <laughs> you came all this way for real? That's crazy. All right. I got to go. I think they were doing that to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They were over it. And Clover, when she got over to Clover, she met Henrietta's first cousin, who would give the family rundown to Rebecca. 
Two months later, Rebecca would finally meet Sonny Lax and he would drop her off to meet the eldest brother, Lawrence. Rebecca had heard stories about the Lax men. So Rebecca didn't know what to expect. She knew one of them had killed somebody and went to jail. Mm-hmm. And then comes. Which one is it? This 275 pound, six foot man. Uh-huh. And she is in the house with him by herself. Yeah. Well, hello. Eating Ms. eggs Re- and pork. Yeah. And she's said. Jewish. <laughs> oh, that's. She's like, I haven't oh, eaten pork pork in 10 years but you know what I'm gonna get this story (laughs) I love the pork I love it it's delicious that is right he said well hello Miss Rebecca want to taste the meal I cook pork and eggs she said boy do I shucks there you go Lauren shared (laughs) stories with Rebecca about his life in the country but she would quickly learn that Lawrence didn't remember his mother he only remembered her being strict Rebecca told Lawrence about what his mother's cells accomplished. Sonny would later return to the house to Lawrence. And Rebecca and behind him was Day. That's right. And it was clear that the family was frustrated with John Hopkins. They didn't trust him. John Hopkins had a reputation for taking black people off the street and keeping them for research and testing. And those people would never be heard from or seen again. Did Deborah enter the house during this conversation? No. She wouldn't speak to anyone? Who was the woman that entered the house? Uh, Bobette, the one you really like that took care of the children. Oh, that raised oh, the she's children. Just, oh this is Sonny's wife. Yep. No, so, this is Lawrence's wife. Oh, well, whatever. So <laughs> Lawrence, Lawrence's wife enters. Don't speak to nobody. She look at Rebecca and go, mm, another one. Mm-hmm. Literally. But then they start talking about John Hopkins and she screamed from the kitchen. I wouldn't go to John Hopkins to get my toenail cut. Shoot. <laughs> I said, man, I still like this lady. Where is she? We need to hang out. <laughs> part eight. This is our final part. Hila sells accomplishments and drawbacks. And this is where I really need your help, Kari. After Henrietta's death, there was plans to work a Gila, um, create a Gila factory. And this operation would grow trillions of Gila cells each week in an effort to what? Stop polio. By February of 1952, an announcement was made that the first polo vaccine was developed. Polo is a sport you play on horses. We're oh. talking about polio, which ironically you cannot play Woo. polo with. Just clearing that up. I know you got it. Go ahead. My cat distracted you with her water bowl <laughs> shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Polio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. The, but they needed to test the vaccine. And typically... They would send test monkeys, but that was getting expensive. It they didn't cost. care about the animals dying. The animals kept dying. And they was like, all these dead monkeys are expensive. Millions of dollars. <laughs> Millions of dollars. <laughs> so the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, NFIP, a charity created by Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had paralysis from polio himself, turned to Guy and other cell culture experts for help. The timing was perfect. Henrietta Cell had already demonstrated they could grow unlike any other human cell seen. Most cells, um, culture cells were picky. Um, the process for growing them were labor intensive, but scientists had to, scientists had to repeatedly scrape the cells from one tube and split them into uh, different tubes to create more space. But HeLa cells, they didn't need a glass surface to grow. The bigger the vat of medium, 
the more the cells grew. HeLa cells weren't limited by space in any way, the same way that other cells they were. They were odd because you'll probably get to this, but they could even travel through the air yeah. like a virus. Yeah. They would divide until they ran out of culture medium. Mm -hmm. So they were just really eating up the medium that was put before them. What they needed to do at this point is learn how to ship large quantities. Mm -hmm. So Guy uh, came up with a way to ship large quantities so he could just send them all over the world. Just mm -hmm. send them out. He also contracted with William Schur, who was an overseer um, at Tuskegee Institute. Of course. And they would help use this school, right, to and their scientists to help grow the HeLa cells. Mm -hmm. Henrietta cells um, would be used to help save lives of millions of American people, mostly of them white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who could afford health care? Yeah. Henrietta Unlike cells. her family. Yeah. Henrietta cells help launch the field of virology, the study of viruses. Researchers around the world made several important scientific advances in quick succession. One of them, and I'm just going to name a few of them, but you, Kari, jump in with any of them that you recall. Development of, the, they developed a method for freezing cells without harming or changing them. They developed the first standardized culture medium that could be made by the gallon and shipped ready to use. Um, they learned which glassware or test tube stoppers were least toxic to cells. They learned how to clone human cells. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. In 1953, a geneticist in Texas accidentally mixed the wrong liquid with HeLa and a few other cells. And from this mistake, he would learn that humans' normal cells consisted of 46 chromosomes. And that mm -hmm. meant a lot because it helped them identify chromosomal disorders such as Down syndrome patients, they learned that they would have an extra chromosome. Mm -hmm. They use HeLa cells instead of lab animals to test whether new products and drugs cause cellular damage. They use HeLa to test the effects of steroids, chemotherapy drugs, hormones, vitamins, tuberculosis, salmonella, vaginitis. Lots of people knew Henrietta's name in the medical community, but Guy and Talind wanted to keep Henrietta's name away from the public. And one record is said, I can see no point in running the risk of getting into trouble by disclosing it. What getting into trouble? Yeah. yeah. Not compensating the family yeah, for these cells mean? you stole. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wasn't, <clears throat> he couldn't possibly talking about privacy laws because there were none on the books exactly. at the time. Well, in November of 1953, Henrietta Lakes was ID'd as the name behind HeLa cells. Right. Eventually. And Lane too, right? Yeah. In 1954, an article would release the name behind HeLa as Helen Lane. But this was actually a cover created by Guy and Tulane to. Not let the Lacks family know. All he wanted was that the family not know. Yeah. Yeah. The article also said that the cells were taken after her death. Mm -mm. In the months, though, before Guy would die from cancer, he was like, go ahead, release that name. Yeah, I'm dying. So and he would <laughs> never. And he told his assistant 
I think it was Margaret Mm -hmm. to release the name, but she never did. Other things that came up in 1954, a virologist named Chester Southam was concerned that the Henrietta's cancer cells could infect the scientists working on them. Mm -hmm. So Guy and others um, had already known that rats injected with HeLa grew tumors. But Southam started injecting saline solution mixed with HeLa in the arms of cancer patients without without them knowing. He told them it was a test for their immunity system. He -hmm. never told them he was injecting them with someone else's malignant cells. The people would grow tumors and he would just remove them. Unless they metastasized and then they would just die. Right. Then... In 1956, he started injecting healthy patients with HeLa. Where did he get the healthy patients, Kari? Prison? That's correct. Mm -hmm. The penitentiary. Yeah. This time he had volunteers, 150 people volunteered. So so he started taking people without their consent. And someone was like, hey, that's illegal. Uh, Stop it. And so he was like, fine. And so then they were like, hey, y'all want to be part of this cancer research? Yeah, we said it. And so some of the men were like, well, I've done really bad wrongs in my life. And this is my way of paying back society. So just tell people, maybe they'll do it. You don't know. Just Just, tell them. Just tell them. Just tell them. Just tell them. Mm -hmm. Then in 1963, Southam wanted to inject 22 Jewish people, 22 patients at the Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital with cancer cells and the doctors refused because it reminded them of the Nuremberg code. Yeah. So they're like, Oh, you want to do Nazi stuff on Jews? We're going to pass. Also, we're going to resign from the hospital. We give up our rights to operate at this hospital. Is that a big deal? Does it lead to sacrifice on our part? Yes, but we're willing to do it because it's unethical now. Yeah. (laughs) And so, they were called to the carpet and told that they were too sensitive because they were Jews. This is shocking. I am shocked. Just I don't know why, though. Absolutely wild behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, this man was running wild and eventually that was halted. Someone told him he had to stop doing that. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other developments after that, but there was something in particular that came up. The HeLa cells were contaminated, right? Do you remember this account? So they're saying, like, where is the source of these HeLa cells, right? I remember the HeLa cells contaminating everything else. So you need to be able to categorize the HeLa cells because they have their own set of characteristics. And if you're studying other cells in the same lab, for example, or or you got these other cells from a lab across seas, you need to trust that they've been separated and sanitized and the area was sanitized. But what this doctor found is that, or scientists found is that these new cells that he got were already have HeLa cells in them and the HeLa cells would just take over everything. So you don't mix HeLa cells with other cells because they'll all just become HeLa cells. And he's like, but I asked for a different set of cells. And what that means is that HeLa cells can travel through the air. They can travel on dust. They are invasive. Okay, so the studies that y'all are doing that y'all think aren't using HeLa cells, test them because they probably are. That means you've wasted time. 
and money. Yeah. And this, um, people didn't believe him at first. That's a lot to swallow. Yeah. Like, they were I'm like, the, no. I'm on the edge of a breakthrough. Are you telling me I'm not? Yeah. <laughs> I've devoted my life to this specific whatever I'm doing. And you're telling me that all along the cells that I were using weren't from where I thought they were. They were actually HeLa cells. HeLa is everywhere. It's a vibe. And that was like, not the downfall, but kind of the uh, kind of corruption of what the HeLa cells were do, um, doing. And that would bring us to the end of part one. Yeah. So now we're in this precarious position where are the HeLa cells good? People are like, where are the HeLa cells? Also, I'm sorry, they came from a black woman, you say? And you're injecting us with the black? So now people are like, wait, I understand we got all these cures and stuff. Great. But I don't know about this. Can we have some white cells and a doctor? (laughs) Oh, guy was even like, well, use my cells. You can call them gorgeous guys. That was like, no, no. No, we they, they opened them up. They was like, oh, you full of cancer. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so when he came to, he was like, what? Y'all cut me open and didn't oh, operate? Oh, that's right. They wanted him to take his cells. He wanted that. And so he went to another do doctor it. and his cells kept dying. He was like, no, I want to be. I want to be Gila. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> you can't be Gila. Okay. It's only one Gila. Only one. You'll never be Jello. <laughs> That's from my best friend's wedding. Okay, you ready to take a break? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. And we're back. Woo. Alexis, one. should we talk about how we feel about the first part? Any Best, thoughts you want to share, please? please? You know, I'm really enjoying... The way she's telling this story, um, the information is abundant. I, I remember saying that it was a scientific book and it's a lot of science in there, but I'm drawn in and rereading. So I understand and I still need help. <laughs> so I have the audio version and the um, ebook. And I find that when the science gets too sciencey, it helps to listen to it. It does. It makes all the difference in the world. I'm doing both as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am I am enjoying it. I like how she's telling about the interactions with the family. I appreciate them. It seems like the family was really abused and, and through their process. And um, they do have this protector and doctor not doctor the professor at Morehouse yeah trying to make sure Mm -hmm. yeah and then they're just not the way they're ghosting people I love it they're Mm -hmm. like I'm tired of it you travel all this way for what huh all right gotta go okay you have to really be (laughs) persistent and determined and patient all the things that Dr. Patillo said when he was talking to Rebecca the first time, mm-hmm. you need to be patient with this family. They've gone through a lot. They've not been compensated for this use, this abuse of their family and their selves. And I think, and I think we'll get into it in later chapters that they also have been tested. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so um, they've been experimented on is what we should say. Mm-hmm. So this is the thing. You don't even have to compensate people with financials. You should. But what if you just said at this hospital where we stole your mama's cells, 
you will always receive free health care. So simple. You and your legacy. It's, that is not even close to the amount the medical world has gained in hard cash from mm-hmm. your mama's body. Can I just read a statement by John Hopkins? So if you Google Henrietta Lacks, the first entry is not Wikipedia, as is usually the case. Mm. In fact, it is Hopkins Medicine. And they say this. Listen, <laughs> that's what they say. Listen, <laughs> Johns Hopkins applauds and regularly, regularly participates in efforts to raise awareness of the life and story of Henrietta Lacks. Mm. Having reviewed our interactions with Henrietta Lacks and with the Lacks family over more than 50 years, we found that Johns Hopkins could have and should have done more to inform and work with members of Henrietta Lacks family out of respect for them, their privacy and their personal interests. Though the collection and use of Henrietta Lacks cells and research was an acceptable and legal practice in the 1950s, Mm. such a practice would not happen today. Mm. We promise y'all, y'all can still come to us Mm -hmm. uh, without the patient's consent. We are deeply committed to the ongoing efforts at our institutions and elsewhere to honor the contributions of Henrietta Lacks and to ensure the appropriate protection and care of the Lacks family's medical information. Give people their money. Yeah. I don't know if they got it yet. I ain't at the end of the book. I, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And you said you're not watching the movie, right? Yeah, when we're done with the book. Okay. Did you watch it already? Yeah, I watched it a long time ago. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Well, thank you, Alexis. What are we reading next week? Part two, starting with well, part, part three. two. <laughs> part three, which is immortality. Yeah, so this book is divided in parts. In this episode, we reviewed part one and two, and we'll finish through the end of the book next week. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for us on Spotify. Or if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Love you. We love y'all too. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read something. something.